Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Well, you might look at the message title today and say, failure? Really? Do I really want to talk about failure? Because the truth is, really none of us want to talk about failure. We would rather just kind of dismiss it, set it aside, say, no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not fun to talk about, to talk about our failures, to talk about problems, to talk about when things go wrong. Um, so if you're, if you're new, if you're visiting or checking this place out, we're really glad you're here with us. And I hope that you'll take, go on this little journey with us as we talk about failure today. Because no matter if you've been at church for a long time, or maybe this is the first time or the first time in a long time, no matter what, failure is unavoidable. No matter what we try to do in, li- in life, things are going to go wrong. Things are going to happen that didn't pan out the way we wanted them to, and we have to deal with those situations. We have to figure out, well, what are we going to do with it? But I want to start with kind of two little bit of, bits of like a disclaimer on this message as we jump into this. And the first one is, is that listening to a message series isn't going to solve the grief that failure causes. Just hearing me talk about this isn't actually going to end and be like, oh great, everything's fine, now I can carry on. This is actually, this series is designed more about being some conversation starters, about helping us figure out what are the things we need to process through in order to, to carry on with our lives, to see that failure isn't the end of the road. And the second part of that is, as we talk about failure, each one of us is probably going to have something in our minds. Maybe it's an event of the past while, or something's going to come up, and you're going to be like, okay, well, how do I apply it to this? Now, I can't speak specifically to your individual situation, so I'm going to need your help on this, to say that what we're talking about is like giving a lens for how to view what happened. But you're going to have to be with me on this and actually put in some of the work of saying, well, how, do I, how does this apply? Um, and do a bit of that about how does this fit to where my life is right now? But the question that we come to often is if failure is unavoidable, what are we going to do next? What do we do after something went wrong? Maybe it was a project at work. Maybe it's a relationship that went south and, and you couldn't work through a piece of conflict or something like that. What do you do after the failure happens? Because that's what defines how we'll move on from it. But our default response, and this is what we talked about last week, our default response is usually denial. We would rather ignore that it happened. We'd rather put it away. But when we try to hide from failure... We allow it to trap us in that moment, and we never actually get to move on from it. We actually never get to process through it. We never get to experience healing if we just try to deny and hide from it. And so last week when we started this series, we ended with this simple challenge that's really quite deep. But when you fail, will you let yourself grieve? Will you let yourself experience the emotions that come with it? And just maybe, are you willing to let Jesus meet with you in those moments of grief? Are you willing to let Jesus connect with you and walk you through that process? And so that was something we talked about last week. And if you're like, that sounds more interesting than what he's going to talk about today, you can always catch that on our podcast uh, to, to catch up on a week and where we started this series. But what we're doing in this series is we're framing it around a parable. And a parable is a story, and it's a way that Jesus often taught during his ministry because a story has a way of getting around our defenses. It has a way of, of kind of implanting it with us and making us remember it and, st- and think and mull about it later. Like, well, what could that mean? And so at this one point in the Gospel of Luke, 
Um, Jesus gets challenged by a group of religious leaders and Pharisees, and this happened frequently and constantly. They were always after Jesus because he didn't treat the world the way they did. Because the religious leaders and the Pharisees, anything that they deemed unclean or improper, they would just try to push and separate themselves from as much as they could. But Jesus' practice was he went and he hung out with the people that the religious leaders would ignore. They challenged him and they said, how can you be a good teacher if you're spending all this time with tax collectors and sinners and people with bad reputations? And so Jesus, to respond to them, he tells three parables. And the last of those three parables is this one. He says, a man had two sons. And the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, to give them their inheritance early. And so a few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And you're thinking, man, this guy's a real winner at this point. I mean, first of all, he says to his dad, you're worth more to me dead than alive. Give me the inheritance now. And then he runs off, goes to a distant land, blows all his money. And so about the time that the money ran out, a great famine sweeps over the land and he begins to starve. And he persuades a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. And the man became so hungry that even the seed pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. See, this is the middle of the parable. This is the moment on the story arc where it is the darkest. This is the moment where it's at the bottom. And the next verse, we know that things are going to start turning around. And Jesus is going to say something. He's going to bring some resolution. I mean, we know that's how Jesus teaches. He always brings redemption and restoration to everything he does. So when is that going to happen? But that... We're going to wait one more week on. We're going to dwell in this spot of the parable for just today. And then next week, we're going to start looking towards the resolution of it. But at this point in the parable, the younger son has lost his family, his money, his dignity, and maybe even his faith. Because pigs were an unclean animal. You didn't associate with pigs if you were Jewish, like the audience that Jesus was talking to. And so there's this moment of saying, this young man is in a faraway land. He's distant from his family. He's got no money. He got this terrible job where he's got to go harvest these seed pods that really aren't good food anyways because it's a famine. And he's thinking, I should eat what I'm feeding to the pigs. And so what do you do in that moment? And there's a question that comes up, and we always come to whenever something goes wrong. Everyone knows this. It says, when something goes wrong, well, well, can't we learn something from it? What can I learn from my failures? And I want to throw a comment in here, and kind of as an aside, if you go with me for a moment. We're talking about failure here. We're not talking about abuse. If you're in a situation where you've experienced abuse in any way, you actually don't need to learn something from that. Your only task, your only responsibility is to get the help that you need. So that's, we're talking about failure today, not actually abuse. If you need, if you're in a situation like that, reach out to mobile crisis, reach out to police, reach out to social work, reach out where you need to. But when we're talking about failure, we're talking about like, you know, a work project went wrong or a a task you took on fell apart, or maybe it's a relational failure that comes to mind where things fell apart. And you look at this and you say, well, what can I learn from that? But our default, wouldn't we rather just move along? But when we move too quickly from our failures and we don't take time to learn from them, 
we deny ourselves an opportunity to grow in our character, to grow in who we are, in, in, in the, the way, what kind of the fabric of what makes us up is our character. It influences how we experience things, how we see things. Our character matters, and it's our character growth that enables us to handle failure, that enables us to handle challenges, enables us to handle the responsibilities of life. And so when we have a moment of failure, we can see this as a moment for growth in our character. And we all kind of know that in the back of our mind somewhere. So what do we actually do? How do you actually learn from your failures? And I want to propose that there's two things that we can do that we're going to see in this parable and we're going to talk about today. And the first one is to ask this question, what portion do I need to own? What portion of what went wrong do I need to own? And I use the term portion because it's very rare that something is 100% one person's fault or 0% one person's fault. Usually it's somewhere in the middle. And, and it's not about figuring out the exact math of like, hey, you're 66.6% at fault on this one and I'm only 33.3. Don't, don't do the math. But when it comes to something where, where you know, a project fell apart or a relationship fell apart, we have to actually ask ourselves, am I willing to own 100% of whatever portion belongs to me? I, am I actually willing to say, you know, that was my mistake. This part of it was where I screwed up, I messed up, and I'll own the responsibility for that piece. Now, don't try to add up the percentages. It's not going to work out. But am I willing to own 100% of whatever piece of the responsibility falls on my shoulders? Am I actually willing to learn from that, to review it, to own it? And let's, let's do a little experiment here, and let's go back to our parable. What caused the son to end up feeding pigs? What actually is the son's portion that he has to own 100% of? And there's a, a New Testament uh, professor by the name of Mark Allen Powell who uh, works at a seminary in Columbus, Ohio. He di- was teaching on this parable once, and this idea came to him. He said, I'm going to make my students retell the parable from memory and see what details they include. Let's do a little kind of comprehension thing. And the results of that shocked him. And so he decided to do a bigger study. He got 100 students from his seminary together, and they represented kind of all diverse backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different uh, races, different, even people of different religious backgrounds that were in the seminary. They did this. And the task was, you open your Bible, you read Luke 15, 11 to 32, the parable that we're going through in this series, and then you close your Bible and you retell the parable to your partner. Now, when asked to retell Luke 15 from memory, only six out of 100 American seminary students mentioned the famine. Now, if, if, you, if you need help with that, like I do with numbers, that's only 6%. Only 6% recognized the famine as a detail when they retold this parable from memory. And uh, Dr. Powell thought this was fascinating, kind of interesting. He didn't really know what to do with it. But then a couple years later, he got invited to teach a course at a seminary in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he thought, huh, when I did that original study, all the students were American. That's the commonality of all these students. I'm going to repeat this with these Russian seminary students that he's at when he's in St. Petersburg. And so when he asked a group of students to retell this parable from memory, 42 out of 50 Russian students mentioned the famine. And you kind of go, huh, 
We went from 6% to 84% in mentioning the famine as one of the factors of this parable. Well, why? Why is there such a difference between this group of American students and this group of Russian students? And here's what Dr. Powell thinks, and this is his theory, and he didn't really have a way of testing this, but this is what he led to. See, St. Petersburg as a city was not always named St. Petersburg. In fact, it was renamed into the city of Leningrad for a time period, and then later on it was cha- its name was changed back to St. Petersburg. But when it was named Leningrad during World War II from 1941 to 1944, the city of Leningrad was cut off from the rest of Russia by Nazi German forces. Uh, St. Petersburg is in this little unique piece of geography where it's on this strip of land that's only about 60 kilometers wide. And there's the Baltic Sea to the west, there's a big lake to the east, and Finland's border is to the north. And the Nazi forces were able to cut off St. Petersburg from the rest of Russia. And the city, they couldn't overtake the city, but the city was placed under siege. And during that time period, the city starved. Now, eventually, uh, the Russians were able to build ice roads over the lake, and through the summer, they would run boats in, and they could get around the German forces. But during the winter of 1942, the average ration for a civilian was only 500 grams of bread per day. And half of that bread, the flour used to make that bread was actually sawdust, because they didn't have enough flour to go around. See, their whole city starved during World War II. The estimation nowadays is between 1.1 and 1.3 million civilians starved to death during that siege. And that doesn't even count the losses of the soldiers that were defending the city. See, that city, Leningrad, got renamed St. Petersburg. And Dr. Powell is with this group of students in St. Petersburg as he does this, this test on this parable that includes a famine. See, the history caused the Russian students to see the famine as the cause of the son's misfortune. That detail leaps off the page to them because of their history as people. And so when Dr. Powell wrote about this in his book later, This is his theory that he came up with. He said the history caused the Russians to see the cause as the famine. But when we look at the American students, he says America has a very capitalistic, individual-focused society. It's not as communal-focused as Soviet Russia was at the time. And so he says capitalism is what leads the American students to see that the man wasting his money is the cause. Now, just as a thing on this parable, Jesus didn't say if it was the famine or the foolish decisions. He just said both happened. He doesn't make a, he's not making a commentary on systems of government here in this parable. But there's a difference between these two groups, between the American students and the Russian students. And that difference is something that psychologists call a cognitive bias. And I'm going to give kind of the simple layman's definition of that, that a cognitive bias is a habit or a pattern in our thinking that causes us to perceive and interpret information differently, leading to different conclusions or actions. This is why two people can experience the exact same thing, but have completely different accounts of what actually happened. In fact, cognitive biases actually help us think and make decisions faster, but sometimes they lead us to decisions that aren't right and aren't necessarily the best. Everyone's perception is slightly different. 
And, and a cognitive bias is a, is a category. There's all kinds of different ones, but there's one that I want to focus on today because it, it shapes how we view failure in a big way, and that's this one. It's called the self-serving bias. And this is a tendency in every single one of us that we tend to claim more responsibility for our successes than for our failures. So something goes right, you know, you have a project at work and you knock it out of the park and everyone goes, well done, you've done great on that. You're like, yeah, I did good. I did good. But then maybe you get another project to do and that project falls apart. You know, the client just doesn't like your proposal and says, no, no, not a chance. We're going with your competitor. What do you do? Oh, well, that that client, they just couldn't see how good our product was. See, we don't take responsibility for our failures. We'd rather say, no, no, that's, that's just, that was their decision why that didn't happen. But when things went right, well, that's my responsibility. I made that go right. See, all of us have this self-serving bias. And we carry these biases even into how we look at Scripture. And so if we actually say, well, objectively, so what is the younger son's portion to own? If we just say, well, let's just say that the famine and his use of money are equal, what's the portion he has to own? Well, the portion he owns, I think it comes down to about four things. And maybe we could make a longer list, but let's stick with just these four. There's dishonor. He dishonored his father by asking for his inheritance early. He dishonored his family by leaving and going to a different nation, a different place. Then there's greed. You know, he just wanted the money. And then he wanted to go and he figured how he was going to spend the money was better than his father would. There's a pride piece in how he went and wasted his money. And then the foolishness comes into he didn't make wise decisions about that money. But is it the son's portion to own that the famine happened? No. See, for the son to learn anything in this, if he says this was all the famine he'll never learn anything from it. If he says, well, the famine happened because I wasted my money, well, that's not going to help him either. But we actually have to say, when we review something that's happened, understanding we all see things differently, what portion of whatever happened is my piece to own? And so how do we know what that portion is? And knowing that we have these cognitive biases that get in the way, knowing that we have this self-serving bias and there's all kinds of other biases that psychologists have, have understood, how do we get past the way that they prevent us from seeing with clarity and objectivity? How do we get beyond that? And there's two things that help us get past that. The first one is saying we can overcome our biases when we recognize our thought patterns. When we, when we have that thought and we say, whoa, wait, is that actually true? Was it entirely someone else's fault or is there part of that that's mine? And the second one is when we allow other people to speak about what happened. Because here's the fascinating thing about that self-serving bias. Other people's self-serving bias means they see their own successes as their responsibility, but they don't see your failures as something else. Our cognitive biases, when we're in a group, can actually start to cancel each other's out. And so someone that knows the situation well, that knows you well, knows what happened, can often speak with a level of clarity that we can't see ourselves. See, this is why community matters. This is why having uh, you know, someone that you can sit down and process things through with matters. Because other people will see things that we can't. There's often times where, uh, a few times, uh, 
where I've had to like write an email about something and I've actually sent it to my wife and said, hey, I need a tone check on this. <laughs> Am I just frustrated and that's why this needs a check? And, and usually she'll say, yes, you need to tone it down or sometimes that's okay. But every one of us needs some of those stops, those points where instead of hitting send on the angry email, we leave it in the draft folder for a while. And we say, no, no, I need to come back to this when I'm not upset or I need someone else to look at this. I need another set of eyes on this before we cause more harm than good. But let's just be totally clear on this. It is not easy to own our portion of our mistakes. This goes against kind of everything in our minds to say, I'm going to take ownership for what went wrong. No one wants to do that. In fact, you're probably thinking of examples right now, maybe even from this past week, where you're like, well, that person didn't take ownership of their mistakes. No, 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 we're focusing on our mistakes Not someone else's right now, just our own. Because here's why. Without taking ownership of our failures, any forgiveness that someone offers to us will be empty and shallow to us. So if I upset someone, if I harm them, if they feel like that conversation went poorly, and I just dismiss it and say, no, no, I didn't harm you. No, you're just just too sensitive. And they say, no, no, I actually forgive you for what you've done. I'm like, forgive me for what? I didn't do anything wrong. See, until we own our portion, the forgiveness that someone offers to us will not affect us. We won't see that they're offering grace. We won't see that they're offering mercy. We won't see that they're offering compassion. All those things are what will build us together as a community. All these are ways that we see love at work. So what we have to do when we come to failure, there's this stage, and it overlaps sometimes with the stage that we talked about last week of letting ourselves grieve. But we need to review and own whatever portion of the failure belonged to us. And it's not easy at all. But when we review and we discuss our failures and mistakes, there's something that's very easy for us to slide into. There's something very easy that we can slip into as we review what happened. And that's slander. The way that we speak about the event that happened matters. Even in our own internal thought process, the way we think about the other people involved in whatever the situation is will shape us. And it will shape our approach to it. And so as we review what happened, we need to be very careful. We need to guard ourselves against slander. We need to guard ourselves against saying things that are untrue about the other people involved or the situation itself. Because that doesn't help us get anywhere. In fact, that harms, that causes relationship breakdown instead of restoring and working together towards something that's good. And so uh, Nikki took us to James during the worship set earlier. And I'm going to take us back to James, but just a chapter earlier. And James uh, is the half-brother of Jesus, one of Mary's other children that's born afterwards. He's a younger brother to Jesus. And he was an influential leader in the church of Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, when Jesus was alive, um, John, one of the disciples, even points out, says none of Jesus' own brothers believed he was the Messiah. I mean, they grew up with him. And they said, no, no, you can't be the Messiah. We grew up, we knew you for too long. But afterwards, after Jesus' death and resurrection, James writes this letter, and it's not written to a specific church or a specific group. It was written to be copied and circulated amongst all the people that had fled from Jerusalem because of the persecution that was happening in the early church. 
And he starts, he opens up James 3 this way with my least favorite passage of scripture. He says, dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Yay. And then he goes on to this, but here's why he says, here's why he says, indeed, we all make many mistakes, even teachers in the church. I can make mistakes in what I'm talking about sometimes. And so you got to have grace for me in that. Everyone makes mistakes. That's the point he's getting to. But he says, for if we could control our tongues, and by that he means if we could control the words that we speak, we would be perfect and could control ourselves in every other way. That's big. He's saying if we could control our words, if we could control the self-talk that happens in our mind that's always running, if we could control the way we speak to one another, how often do we just speak out of reaction and afterwards we're like, oh, shouldn't have said that. We've all done it. Many of us make mistakes. We all make mistakes. But here's what he goes on to. He says a little bit later, he, he's, he's still expanding on this idea when he gets down to verse 7. He says, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. He really doesn't mince his words here. He says, but what he's getting at is that the tongue, the words we speak have incredible power. Our words can praise God or curse people. Our words can bring healing and hope to a situation or our words can cause further damage. And they come out of the same mouth, every word that we speak. So what do we do with that? When we review a situation, when we're actually looking at what do, how do I own what part of this belongs to me. The words and the way we speak them matters. Because our words can either bring healing and hope or our words can cause further damage. And I hope it's evident which one we want to lean towards. We want to learn towards speaking words that build one another up. We want to speak words that lead people towards finding restoration, to finding redemption, to finding resolution to issues that have happened. To talk about situations, to learn from them together, to prevent the harms from happening again in the future. And so how do we do that? How do we actually focus on speaking words that bring healing And James gets to that near the end of chapter 3. We're going to jump down to verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above, meaning the wisdom that God gives to us is from above, is first of all, it is pure. It is peace-loving. It is gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. That one's tough. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and it is always sincere. James, throughout the whole letter, keeps coming back to saying, if you need wisdom, ask for it. If you need wisdom, pray for it. If we need wisdom from God, ask for it. It will be given to us. Because when we get wisdom from God, when we allow God to speak into our situations, when we read Scripture, we understand the learnings, or in prayer, if the Holy Spirit gives us those nudges and those taps and points us in a direction of saying, no, no, this is how to handle what's going on. Wisdom from above is pure, peaceful, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, and is the fruit of good deeds, shows no favoritism, and is always sincere. Isn't that the kind of person, if we took those characteristics and we said, isn't that the kind of person we want to have conversations with? 
Isn't that the kind of person you want to be your coworker, to be your friend, to be your neighbor? Well, what does it take for us to be that kind of person? As we review and we own our mistakes, what does it take for us to seek wisdom, to seek these pieces? How will we do that? See, for each of us, that path is going to be slightly different. And we already can probably figure out and know what's the step I need to take that will lead us in that direction. But there's a promise underneath all of this. That even though it's difficult and it's painful to review our mistakes, even though it's tough to look back at our failures, underlying promise throughout all of Scripture is this. God's love for us cannot be changed or lessened by our failures. God loves us just as much before we screwed up as he does after we screwed up and as much as he will after we mess up the next time. Because God is a God of love. God is a God that provides us with wisdom, provides us with peace. And so if we go back to that parable for a moment, the son is in a distant, faraway land. He's feeding pigs. He's starving. He wants to eat this bitter seed pods that he has to go and harvest and grind up and give to the pigs. He doesn't know it because he's in the depths of his failure. But God still loves him just as much as when he was at home with his father. And you might be thinking this parable is just depressing. If you've been here last week and this week, you're like, man, this is some heavy stuff. And you're right, it is. But this is the kind of stuff that we all deal with on a daily basis, isn't it? This is all the kind of stuff that's there in the back of our minds that we'd rather just push aside. But when we deal with it, we actually get to see restoration happen. We talked last week about saying, are you willing to let Jesus meet you in the midst of your grief? And as we review our mistakes, there might be fresh pieces of grief that come back. And so it's not always a sequential one, two, three, four equals everything's hunky-dory. But we may bounce back and forth between one and two for a while. As we review things, there might be fresh things that come up that we need to grieve, that we need to let go of, that we need to hand over to God. But can we be sure of this? And can we remind ourselves of this, that God's love for us has not changed? Are we willing to take comfort in that? Let me take a moment. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the way that you love us, for the way that you care for us, for the way that you provide for us, for the way that you desire such a deep relationship with every one of us. God, you are even calling out to people who do not know you yet, to people who feel like they're far from you. You are always reaching out. And God, for that, we thank you. And we pray that for each of these situations that's in the back of our mind, maybe something that went wrong at work or with a friend or or in our families, God, you know the situations that each one of us are thinking about as we talk about failure. And Lord, I just pray that throughout this week as we review, as we look back, as we figure out what do I need to own and make amends for? What do I need to own and apologize for? What do I need to own and make restitution for? Lord, would you guide us in those things? Would you help us to see your wisdom from above that leads to peace and grace and mercy? Lord, would you help us in these things this week? In your name we pray, amen. So folks, next week we're going to continue this and we're going to move on from the depths of this parable. 
And we're going to start the journey towards finding restoration in this. So folks, I hope, to see, hope you have a great week and I hope to see you next Sunday. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.